Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers and a special bonus episode where we'll be speaking with Pulitzer Prize winner from 1988, William Bolcom. Hopefully by now you've had a chance to listen to our episode where we discuss his winning piece, the 12 new etudes for piano. And uh, we, Andrew and I took the opportunity to speak with William Bolcom during the pandemic, and we spoke to him by Zoom, and you'll also hear a special guest. I don't think she speaks, but you'll you'll hear us talk about her. But uh, it'll give you a good insight into some of the things we talked about uh, and amplify a lot of what we said in the episode. So hope you enjoy. I, I have to start out with this first one because of our Ives love and Ives connections here. Uh, but with regard to winning the Pulitzer Prize, do you agree with Charles Ives, who said, prizes are for boys? I'm all grown up. <laughs> that sounds about the way I feel about prizes. I mean, really? <laughs> you know, it's nice to have somebody, uh, you know, recognize it. And if it was done in a good spirit, that's very nice. If it's done grudgingly, and you can always find that, uh, that's not so much fun. Because I'm sorry that somebody said, oh, gee, I don't really want to have to give it to this jerk, but I'm going to have to. <laughs> you, know, you can sense that. But, uh, no, it's okay. I mean, it is a nice thing. I frankly, have, I know their question is saying, does it make any difference? We, well, maybe I'll jump ahead of your question. So mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no. No, it was, it was a nice. What had happened is I had been given calls by various people about a friend of mine who was being considered for the Pulitzer, and uh, how did I think? Well, and of course, I'd say he was wonderful and so on. And I was expecting another call. And then suddenly, in fact, I was actually on my uh, on the phone with my publisher talking about the engraving of the 12 new etudes. And the other phone rings. And uh, it tells me that uh, I had been awarded the Pulitzer, which I had wow. been so surprised that all my friends had gotten it. So all of a sudden, I had to. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> So, and uh, we found a little bottle, you know, bottle of bubbly and, and the uh, local paper came out and interviewed us and all that's kind of cute. No, and it's, yeah, well, sure. Well, it's, it's as my, my dear friend used to say, it's better than the kick in the teeth. <laughs> well, and you were nominated first in 1985 for the Songs of Innocence and Experience. Um, what was that experience like whenever you got nominated for the first time? Mm. Well, I say be nice they like it, but then I think I understand why they didn't because it was just too wild for them. The Pulitzer Prize, you know, no, the final. Uh, I actually was on one prize committee, and I forgot from whom. But I mean, uh, that was years after. But uh, the prize committee had evidently gone uh, unanimously for the Songs of Innocence, except in that it was then passed by the review board at Columbia, and they nixed it because. They, you know, because it was just too wild for them, I guess. And <laughs> so, and I, but I found I was a runner-up, so it turned out I was a runner-up to a friend of mine who's now unfortunately died, a composer. And I uh, said, well, I hear that uh, you are, I'm a runner-up. I said, I promise I won't tell anybody that you posed dude for Playgirl magazine. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, thank you, I was worried. <laughs> <laughs> wow. so, so the runner-up was, they wanted to give it to you, but Steve Albert, one who won it. But Steve was a wonderful composer. You know, he died quite in a bad, bad accident. On, well, he drove like a demon. I mean, I would go visit <laughs> Cape Cod and, I mean, 
he was going way too fast. You know, sometimes people can, uh, I don't know what it is, being on an island. I remember when we spent uh, three weeks in Martinique one time, everybody, they all drive, uh, they all drive on that island as if it's, you know, as if maybe they're trying to drive off or something. But, you know, it, it, Indianapolis Speedway, it, it's just crazy. And this is this little island, what is this nonsense? But, you know, that's how people are, I guess. Never mind. So there we are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I've got the score here. So uh, I, there's is. something uh, I had a great thank you for putting me in touch with uh, Mark. Uh, he gave yeah. some really, really interesting comments and, and discussions that we'll post as well. Uh, oh, but he he mentioned that uh, he, he being he, uh, oh Mark uh, Hamelin uh, oh Mark yes of yes, course yes wrote oh. uh, wrote some he answered some of our questions and was really really terrific uh, and he said oh, yeah. he said ask Bill ask Bill about the uh, afterword or the foreword that was originally in the the twelve new etudes but was deleted from the published edition. And it's now back in this this particular score because he said it, it's interesting because it talks about how you wrote the the twelve new etudes since it was written with three different pianists in mind over the years over many years. So how did so you started out with Paul Jacobs, and then yeah, so kind of talk talk us through the the process compositionally. Well. Paul and I were very, very deep, close friends, and he was such a wonderful musician. Are you aware of his recordings? I have oh, all yeah. of his Debussy, his Schoenberg, his some New York yeah, Philharmonic. Yeah. He never was much, he never was a touring pianist. He was basically very much a denizen of the city. He was a regular pianist for the New York Philharmonic, which meant that sometimes, and that it would not uncommonly happen, he'd be doing a Prokofiev symphony before the intermission. And of course, Prokofiev always put piano parts in his symphonies, or most everything else. And so that would be his gig. And then we'd go off and have dinner, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, and we, I, I had always thought of him to be the person to be the uh, end result of the thing. And of course, I watched the progress of the disease as I came and saw pretty much every time, back and forth all the time from oh, touring or like I mean, and I, I was back quite often in that time around 1981 or two when he was, you know, where the disease was getting worse and worse. And, uh, the last time I got to see him, just a week before he died, he was really, uh, he, he kept himself under a towel because I guess he was very uncomfortable. And uh, my wife came up too, because we'd all been very good friends. And uh, uh, it, it was kind of a sad moment. He did ask me if I would try, a, he had bought an ARR, an old one, but uh, which very much like they still make with, they don't overstring the ARR, they just straight. Uh, and so would I play it? So I sat down and played a little of the Chopin B minor waltz. He says, let him have a taste of it. And that's about it. And we talked for a little bit. And he says, I really would love to do your etudes. I just don't think I can do them. And that was when the first eight were done. And uh, or no, maybe it was the first nine. Anyway, no, that's the first nine. And then the nine I wrote after mm-hmm. that kind of a, um, I would, I would, I have kind of a memorial is what I wanted. And uh, Gil Kale issue, I just talked to this, actually last night on this Zoom. He said, that, uh, I remember he came back after I played that last uh, invention and uh, he gave me a huge hug. Because we, we all, we were very, very sadly uh, bereft of such a wonderful person and uh, pianist. And, but, you know, he, he, he was not an easy person in any way, but he was such a terrific pianist and such a terrific musician. So, and, and we'd become very close friends. 
And so yeah. then, then it went to John, is it Must, Musto or Musto? John decided on his own uh, to uh, premiere the three first ones. I mean, the three, third, you know, the first section, the three. And that he did, he did at the new school. And that was nice. It just was kind of because John, John was a friend, but I didn't know he was going to do that. And he, uh, he did. He played those three. And uh, that was the first anything had done. And then, uh, uh, let's see now. Yes, it was in Saratoga that summer, 1986 it was, I think. He came to Saratoga and he played a concert, including the first nine. The other three had not been written, of course. I had had them scratched, but but uh, so, so, so he played those. And then I played the ninth for, uh, for um, um, a memorial concert at, uh, at the Symphony Space in New York. And then all of a sudden I realized when Mark was going to be doing them and wanted to do the rest of them, we came back after a tour. And I remember I sat up, Joan brought me sandwiches and I wrote the last three. <laughs> that he absolutely, and, and I, I'm not sure I slept in those three days. So, oh. I mean, but, but those three were all coming absolutely out. I had, I had sketches, but I had been so bummed by his death that it was hard to think about going on. And then I knew that uh, Mark was there. And, and then he, of course, well, the rest is history. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you talk a little bit about, because these are your 12 new etudes, if you talk a little bit about them in relationship to your, your first set of etudes. Well, my first set of etudes, as was this one, uh, both of them had, at least in the back of my mind, an idea of being able somehow to confront the special problems and interests of recent pianism, recent piano music, which had gotten to a certain level of complexity, which it was at that time. Now, today, now, it's all baby stuff compared to what was that. <laughs> Nobody, nobody goes through this kind of mad thing, but my idea is to be able to confront all the various things that I saw people were doing and also adding a few of my own, like the forearm crashes and stuff. But uh, uh, this was something I wanted to do. And it was wonderful Mark who decided to go ahead and do it. And then he, then he played it, I think, at a concert in, in uh, Tolly Hall, I think, that fall. And he had them all down. And, uh, and then, of course, he's recorded it wonderfully. I actually had play the first set myself and uh, people were making recordings of that particular one. I, 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 I premiered that set at uh, University of Washington when I was teaching there in 1965, I think, six, hmm. well back, you know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> one of the things I've loved about these pieces is the kind of nods you have to other composers, like the, the little Sati quotation and Resatif and then uh, yeah, right. Roy- I've always thought that um, hummingbirds, I always thought that's kind of Schumann-esque at the end where you pull each of your fingers away. So I'm wondering um, if you were thinking about the relationship, especially, I mean, a set of etudes has a long history. If you were thinking about the the balance between kind of tradition and innovation and and earlier composers versus looking forward and and how you kind of thought about that balance. I just thought about what the next note was going to be. I hadn't any particular... Uh, worry about what this was going to, you know, where that would fit in the great canon of everything else. I mean, clearly I was aware and I love to kind of tip my hat to something I like very much and I don't see what's wrong with that. People do that all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this is one of the, there's a great poem by Milton called, which is actually a total uh, fruitcake of quotes from many other uh, poets just to show it's, it's kind of a, no, it's, it's kind of a stunt in that afterward in the, the back of the score you talk about kind of this mixture of 
atonality. You like you like being in the the blurry area between tonality and atonality and tradition oh, and uh, innovation and. Well, I, just, and I, I want the whole language at my fingertips. I mm. mean, uh, in that sense, I suppose I'm sort of a maximalist. I don't need to use it all. I also think you are permitted to be as abstruse and non-tonal as you want to, and you can also be as tonal as you want to and as simple as you want to, depending on what your expressive intent is. And so the whole idea to show, I think if I had to show anything, that all these things could relate and uh, how there it could be really excited, you know, exciting to be able to have the two uh, rub against these other kind of a piece of electricity, which, uh, <laughs> which made it quite interesting for me to do. Do you think that's still the same way now? Do you think, it, or is, because this, this was 30 years ago, do you think it's still or different now? I think maybe I know in my own case the whole kind of kind of a schizoid kind of juxtapositions I used to do have sort of softened out. But I feel uh, able to uh, be as traditional as I want to, or as dissonant, or as wild as I want to, depending on the expressive necessary. And it, it was the same thing. I mean, but it's all there in front of me. If I choose to make a very simple tonal piece, I can do that too. So it's really all of it's a matter of how it all relates. Mm -hmm. I mean. You know, it's just that every time you add more to the, see, the one thing that did happen with uh, maybe just from the 12 tone or whatever it was, it was uh, notes became neighbors that there would normally ever, ever be before. And, you know, it might be a little problem in the neighborhood, but something might come out of it that would be an interesting uh, growth. And it would also have expense, you know, wonderful expressive range. You have the possibility of being very simple, very direct, very emotional and wild and, uh, very, very difficult to follow because that's the intent. Mm -hmm. So it was always just expressive intent. And what, what I was interested in is that now I, the, I had the permission to write anything I need to to express what I wanted to do. And that's what I really wanted to open up the horizon mm -hmm. for, you know, for myself and for anyone else who was interested. Well, so that you've, you've mentioned already a little bit about uh, the how you were notified uh, about the prize, but what effect do you, you know, you kind of preface this, but what effect did it have apart from, I mean, you're joining by 1988, joining a lot of very well-known and well-respected composers. And, and even though Ives thought the prizes were for boys, it is kind of a mark of some, some, you know, acceptance, I guess, in the music well, community. If not acceptance, at least they can't ignore you any longer. <laughs> <laughs> and that's yeah. a, that's, a, that's a, that that if you want to know is, is, is the extent of it did it and i'm sure that's the following question has it done anything to enhance my published public public images mm -hmm. or, no i mean i think <laughs> that my whole connection was already quite strong with the musicians i've worked with all these years i have always been working with that uh, the best of the best. I mean, Paul Jacobs was a great pianist, and people, uh, you must have Krauss's his, his wonderful Schoenberger recording, which is absolutely yes. the best. And, yeah. and also, of course, his uh, his day toots and his and his papers of Debussy was, of course, mm -hmm. was but and he also did a very nice recording of My Graceful Ghost, which is not the style I liked, but I love that he did it. But then, as I say, we were very close friends, and I I was there the day before. Well, did any any new people reach out to you after the Pulitzer and say, "Hey, I want to." play your music or commission you? Was there any kind of that or was it mainly, you're doing great work, keep doing it? Well, actually, uh, I had already, uh, everybody who has been playing my music that has been done over the years was already on board. 
I mean, I don't think that anybody said, hey, I heard it. How about your Pulitzer? And here it is. I always said, you know, people ask me, what is the Pulitzer Prize? Well, I always tell them it's a stuffed chicken, stuffed baby chicken. <laughs> That's the line of the interview. That's <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it, it's wonderful, but uh, I can't say it made any incredible difference in my what so called career. Uh, because who would play me? have been somehow over the years consistently the same. The conductor, Dennis Russell Davies, did most of my major premieres for a close second, uh, Leonard Slatkin. So looking back at the, the 12 new A2s overall, how do you think it fits into your uh, career? Because our uh, Mark said it was one of your best piano works and should be played more. In fact, even more than Ligeti's etudes. Uh, <laughs> uh, was, what's your... <laughs> they're wonderful. <laughs> yes, they are. But he he said it. He said we should play yours more. Uh, so, what's your impression of its reception in the thirty years since it won the Pulitzer? Oh, I think of uh, kind of a bemused respect, and that you know it's wonderful, but they don't quite know how to deal with it because it's 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 too volatile, and the mm. changes in style are a little bit upsetting for people who want to have everything kind of more or less cut and dry. Yes. I mean, that's, that, that's to be expected. I don't know. It's just, uh, I think that it, it does make you aware of the fact that at some point you're there, your name is up there, you're landed. That doesn't necessarily denote any greater understanding of what you're doing. It's just that there you are and they, and they can't kick you off the, well, of course, over time, they do kick you off the stage simply because life goes on, changes of taste and so on. And that, of course, is far more complex than uh, later music. I think you'd have to look at the miroir of Ravel, which are quite complex. Mm-hmm. And, and then you compare that to his later work. And my both sets of the piano etudes are of a greater level of complexity than the much uh, greater amount of other piano music I've written. So, um, but that's what it was. I mean, and I think the Ravel did it. I and mean, maybe it's something when you're young and you want to really define uh, your style, and that was kind of the great. That's what it was. They tuned both of, for for the problems that I do denote in every of the etudes. So this is concentrating on particular aspect, but also the whole physicist of, of what it was. Uh, Joan will probably get that. <laughs> I hope so. She did. <laughs> oh, she did. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thinking about your first set of etudes and, and then the new etudes that. The new etudes have such stylistic variety, and I think a lot of the difficulty comes from the shifts in, in stylistic variety. Um, mm-hmm. And by the time you get to 19, so you said in 1985, they thought Song of Innocence and Experience was a little bit too wild. Um, and I'm wondering if, if it's maybe that the 12 new etudes are in this kind of, uh, you know, longstanding tradition of writing etudes. So it's, it seems what we've discovered in looking at the Pulitzer for its history is that they, they tend to like things that are in that tradition. And I'm wondering if maybe that's one of the reasons why this piece gets honored uh, of your works. My feeling about that, if I want to put it very simply, is that I'm not sure how much they have been, uh, etudes or any of those things have been necessarily an avatar for other people. It's just that they have been something that they couldn't ignore. And uh, how they want to deal with that for themselves and as as composers uh, is something that is going to be different with every particular person. I have 
been told by some people that my example they found to be very liberating for their own things that they want to do. And uh, I, I will tell a story about John Cage, which might probably uh, elucidate a little bit of that whole thing. Uh, when I was a boy, I was at the University of Washington one day a week on Thursdays to take my piano lesson and take my composition lesson and sit in some classes. And uh, every time that John Cage came by, the rather conservative people went to his and then very walked out in a huff, you know, and very, you know, very obviously, you know, and, and he was there with David Tudor, very judiciously hitting the panel leg once in a while with a snare drum stick and, you know, <laughs> all the wonderful things. I was absolutely, I was fascinated. I loved it. I stayed there more than once. I was the last person left in the audience and this little boy in there, you know, 12, 13, 14, wherever it was. And, uh, Years later, uh, John Cage came, so they asked me, would I interview him? And I said, well, of course, I'll be delighted to do so. We went down to the local station, which was, this is, of course, Seattle, as K-R-A-B. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect title. Perfect yeah. name. <laughs> Crab. <laughs> I don't know if this was this, still a Pacific station, that it was. So I met him down there, and I told him that I had always loved uh, being there and being the last person in there. And we talked for maybe two or three hours. They left lots and lots of time. But I was going through a kind of a crisis myself as a composer at this time, um, as well as my marriage was going through another crisis, <coughs> which may or may not be related. It probably is. But anyway, um, finally, after about the third hour, he turns to me and says, well, we've talked a lot about me. How about you? What is your situation as a composer? And I said, I'm quite conflicted because... Some part of me is quite interested in the total chromatic and the possibilities. Of, so the other part of me loves the history of American popular music, and particularly historical one. And I said, well, you know, I'm conflicted. I have this thing that I really don't quite know how to do with this uh, problem where I have, do I have to decide between the complex uh, William Balcom or the, the Bill Balcom who writes uh, uh, things for musical theater? And he said, and this is what I think Tim Page told me this thing, but every composer he had talked to over time said the same thing, that something that John Cage said would open doors for them. Well, mm. so when I said I was conflicted, he said to me, some people decide, divide, I mean, some people divide the world into things that are good and things that are bad. Other people wait and let your inner organism decide. As if scales had fallen off my eyes, I said, <laughs> well, I could be what I was. It's just now that I have a big problem is how do I deal with that? And that became the basic compositional problem from then on. Yes, okay, I have to accept all of that. How do these things relate? Which, of course, makes it kind of was a lifelong kind of, of uh, hobby or problem. And you can work with that for a long time. And I think maybe that, that's one thing. But John, it was who said, that one thing is that some things, uh, you know, some people, you know, divide the world into things that are good and are bad. In other words, let their inner organism decide, and that's what mattered for me. Mm -hmm. It was a great moment, and I've really had, I have been to thank for that. And Tim would say that everybody else has had the same experience who ever talked to him. He was kind of a guru in that way. Well, thank you so much for yeah, speaking with us. This has been just, yeah, so much fun and, and to take you back to that piece and that time period and, uh, and think back to it. So, well, terrific.